What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. Today on the show, we've got Lance Allred. When I started speaking when I retired last year, which is how many speakers out there just are not genuine. And not only with their own content, but just when you meet them off the stage, they're not who they portray themselves to be. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series, where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, CEOs, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. Now, before we jump into the show, I want to cover a couple of things. First, I'm really excited to announce our first sponsor. Today's show is brought to you by Intel. On Thursday, Cinco de Mayo, please check out World Password Day that Intel is helping to promote. The website is passwordday.org. Second, please consider getting involved with a charity our founders started called Child Rescue that's helping build an aftercare orphanage for child sex trafficking survivors in Cusco, Peru. There's details in the Child Rescue tab from the menu on our site. And last, we have a new free program coming out that teaches entrepreneurs the techniques and the legal checklists that our instructors have used to raise tens of millions of dollars for other companies. If you want early access to the free program, please sign up for free at iCollective.co slash fundraise. Again, iCollective.co slash fundraise. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Lance, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Jess. It's good to be here. Yeah, so... Um, We've got some fun things to talk about. We want to talk about uh, being the first deaf player in the NBA. We want to talk about your social entrepreneurship background. We want to talk about your, your program on the NPR affiliate, Culture Jock. Um, but uh, starting off, let, let's start with the NBA side. Um, playing at the, at the Cavaliers, uh, what, when did you start with the Cavs? Uh, that was 2008 when I played with the Cleveland Cavaliers and I was with them, uh, for about, uh, seven months. It was, yeah, seven months for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And then that was the year also 2008 when the bubble popped, the economy crashed. And so most NBA teams were releasing their 14th and 15th roster spots. And I was no exception. So a lot of us got hit with the economy and I was one of them. Now, now previous to that, you played basketball around the world, hadn't you? Yeah, uh, 10 years all around the world, every continent uh, except for Antarctica. Couldn't quite get that one yet. Uh, <laughs> no basketball leagues down. But uh, 10 years and 10 years is long enough. It uh, it was quite the adventure. But, uh, I mean, uh, I've moved on to other things, uh, more rewarding things. And it was just time to move on. And uh, basketball, as much as I loved it, it was 20 years of my life when I started playing at the age of 14 and retiring at 34. Um, it just, uh, it wasn't fulfilling me uh, emotionally or spiritually like it used to. So it's it time to move on to other exciting avenues. And it's, uh, just the year that has happened was happening the years since then. It's been uh, incredibly exciting. Yeah. And, and so let's, let's talk about mainstream for a minute. What, and, and it's M A N E like a lion's mane, mainstream.com. Tell everybody what mainstream is. Mainstream is a big education initiative, channel uh, partnering with channel partners in, in the education and also the tech space in that I, ha- I have a vision that people are entrusting me with and some friends and partners that I've come to know over the last year, but also over the last 10 years of former basketball players, one especially named Dave Turcott, who has a company called Nuvastack which is this uh, online in the cloud desktop as a service. But what has happened is with all these other partners coming in, we have a full spectrum. We provide our own endpoints from Flextronics, Flex now, uh, and we have our own private internet, much of it the old MCI network where we have download speeds of 500 megabytes a second. More than that, actually. I did it today, and I was at 900 megabytes per second. And so it's the fastest and most private internet in the world, and it's our own exclusive internet. And then with our desktop as a service being projected on our, das- on our, on our uh, uh, back-end data centers. And so what it is is a full, comprehensive, end-to-end technological experience that gets any company 
out of IT hassle, mundane IT hassle forever. So you allow your IT staff to now be a more proactive employee developing content or your brand instead of just being the troubleshooter guy that resets passwords all day or onboards or offboards an employee. That's something I now can do with this main, with the Nuvistack technology. But what has happened was my partners, they saw what I was doing as a motivational speaker going around the country speaking to at-risk youth, but also at universities and corporations, uh, I saw the vision. I'm like, you know, this is a huge platform for me to actually have a greater impact on kids and to actually follow through. Uh, instead of just being that rah-rah speaker and like, oh, that'll be $500. See you guys later. Good luck, right? And now I get to say with this end-to-end full-spectrum service, we call this a mobile desktop kit with the endpoint all the way to your uh, remote desktop. So... What we're saying now with mainstream, my company that Nuvistack has entrusted me to do, that I'm, I am the exclusive education director of the Nuvistack technology and some other partners that I have the vertical on that. And so what I'm doing with it, I'm saying for every three mobile desktop kits we sell, we provide one to a child. And, and, and so I want to, yeah, I want to talk about that for a second, because for people who don't understand everything you just said, <laughs> at, at Flex, I mean, these are the guys who are who are manufacturing equipment for for HP and Dell and and Mac Apple. and and there that's where these physical units are going to come from. And if I yeah, understand yeah. right, you know, like like a corporation, you know, they get on the subscription service so they don't have to have IT people in house. And, and essentially, you guys are taking care of the onboarding and the passwords and the HIPAA compliance or the FINRA compliance if they're in the finance industry. You're taking all that, but absolutely. Um, you know, they've got a device for they essentially they got a laptop that's 30 bucks, but it's that quality of build because the whole desktop is, is back, um, somewhere safe with you guys that can't be, uh, can't be crashed. Yeah. So you never have any endpoint theft ever again. We all know the target theft was someone left a thumb drive somewhere or whatever. And the Sony breach, and that's what most of the theft happens from. And so, like, also, I was talking to someone at the movie company a couple weeks ago, telling them you no longer have to send out DVDs for award consideration. Well, that's where most of your piracy happens. You can just uh, send out our little uh, tablets that have no hard drive from our manufacturer with a one-time access login code, and they'll be able to watch your movie streaming onto their endpoints. And after it's viewed, it basically just self-destructs. It terminates, like very Mission Impossible, right? And so... We're offering so much privacy and security and uh, limiting uh, the risk of theft. And also thus, because of that, we're limiting your risk of uh, uh, HIPAA liability, really. And we're lowering your insurance costs. But we're also allowing companies to go green because you don't have desktop or data centers running 24-7 anymore. These little endpoints, these laptops or phones or whatever that you want, you choose to use, they have no hard drive on them. So they require very little battery power. So you're not sucking electricity in your building anymore constantly. So there's so many benefits when you think about it as far as a enterprise goes. And yeah, uh, you don't have to worry about uh, scaling your content for browsers or, or, or phones or computers anymore. You don't have to worry about your updating your software constantly, but also your, your hardware. And those maintenance costs, because, you know, the, the, the numbers vary, but the, the one I, I tend to fall with is that for every dollar you spend on hardware, you spend about $3 on maintenance and just updating all the time. And so really we're saving companies so much hassle, but we're also saving them money. We guarantee to save you about at least 30% on all your storage costs, let alone your operating costs that you bleed every year, just trying to be up and running because we know most corporations now have two divisions, their corporate side, but then also their IT side where they just have to, it's a necessary evil, but we're mitigating a lot of that headache and the, all the eye poking mundane IT stuff. We, we get companies out of that entirely. Let people specialize on what their main business is instead of exactly running an extra exactly. company, handling the IT, huh? Exactly. Well, exactly. Obviously, on the show, we love we love hearing about people who are innovating and they're they're solving problems in more efficient ways for the future. Um, but uh, but I mean, when I left you the voicemail the other day, I, I was what I was excited about was hearing how um, you're not just making the world better for for us capitalists out there. You're you're helping uh, the people who maybe get left behind sometime. Will you will you yes. talk about what happens for these uh, somebody? 
you know, somebody's organization, they, they get 90, you know, they get their 90 staff on here and all of a sudden now there's 30 underprivileged kids that are going to get this service and get this hardware for free. Will you talk exactly. about what that program looks like? So, yeah, um, there's obviously we want that ratio to be better. Um, but just to be responsible fiscally, we're going to say three for one for now. And so what we're offering is so for every three of these mobile desktop kits that we sell at the corporate or academic level, um, we provide one to a child in need. And so what that allows me to do with the mainstream education initiative is to bring in all sorts of edutech partners and experts to create a full end-to-end online school experience for any child in the country. And it's no longer about your socioeconomic background, what your zip code is. If you're in West Wendover, Utah, if you're on our, on our program, you have a faster internet and computer than kids in Park City who get those free iPads every year uh, because we have the fastest computer and the fastest internet in the world. And so we're leveling the playing field for all these kids that would otherwise never be found. Now, I know you, know, you have all the skeptics saying, I know not every kid's going to take advantage of this opportunity that I'm trying to get them. But even if it's just one out of 100, one kid is totally worth it. Um, because we all know Bill Gates in the book Outliers, it was Bill Gates because he had access. And so we're solving that great dilemma facing all of our kids across the country, which is the issue of access. We're, we're negating that entirely. And that's our mission. And so the fun thing is, is that we're going to bring in all sorts of edge tech partners to create an outside-the-box curriculum uh, from Pearson to McGraw-Hill to lots of other corporations that are involved with education. And we're going to allow kids to start learning in the ways they learn and measuring them with our own algorithms and everything so that, you know, there's no longer kids being measured by the standardized tests anymore, that we, we know different kids learn in different ways. We're going to figure out how to solve that for every kid so it's interactive and it's engaging and the teachers are growing with the kids in a flip-style classroom and so they're developing a stronger bond and the kids are much more interactive. That's what we envision happening. And also there's an exciting thing called IQ with our my good friend Jeff Flam. Is this the guy with the Harvard study? Yeah, the Harvard study. And I'm excited and we're trying to figure out the right the right way to make it all fit um, so it works for everybody. But he has a, a company called Infinite Mind and this program called IQ. It's an interactive browser. And the Harvard study has shown – after just six weeks of using this thing daily for six minutes, um, your reading speeds triple and your retention scores just spike, your test scores spike. And even if you only use it for six weeks and you stop, they followed up with tests about five years later and the reading scores were still twice as fast as wow. what they were before they started. And So, so you, this will actually you, allow us to quantify what we're trying to do. Well, it's so interesting how you, know, you can manage what you measure – Right. And so the, the inverse is true also. So um, just to play this out. So potentially so, some company, they buy their, they get a bunch of people on this because they want to quit dealing with the, the security issues and the IT headaches in their office. They want to, they want to reduce their costs and, and reduce their headaches. And now some kid in, you know, there's some kids in Southside Chicago who've got this thing. Um, obviously keeping privacy concerns for those kids safe, but Mm -hmm. you guys are going to be able to tell that company, here's actual numbers on how much better you're making a kid's life. Here's what the, here's what those kids are doing with what you've provided for them. We understand that. And, and I understand not every corporation is altruistic as I am, but some are. And, but whether or not, I don't care as long as we're empowering the kids, but there are companies and people that want to care. And we're going to show them, hey, your money is sponsoring this school in urban Miami. And look at these number of kids whose, whose tests and reading scores are now above the national average, thanks to you. And so we're going to have press releases and announcements saying, you know, this company is sponsoring this school district on the education initiative. And we're going to give them great PR value. And we're going to allow them to see very visibly what their money is doing to help this community, these kids. So there is a true culture and community kickback and give back for both ends of the spectrum of the people that we serve and provide service for. Well, what, what I love about that too is the accountability side of this. You know, we just had on uh, Lindsay Knuven from uh, Code Epoxy, that outdoor brand that's, uh-huh. you know, you buy this backpack, it helps this orphanage in Peru or whatever, right? Yeah. And she just talks about, 
how much, you know, people, you know, well-meaning people, they really see the advertising value of, oh, our company's going to do some good in the world. But maybe the follow through isn't always there, right? Mm-hmm. Of, yeah, right? Maybe those dollars didn't do quite as much as was advertised when I was buying right. that product, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so they, you know, they have very robust things at Code Epoxy about letting people, you know, people being able to see, no, this actually did the good we claimed it was going to do when you bought it. Right. For you yeah. guys to have like the literal numbers to be yeah. able to report back on a consistent basis saying, here's what's happening. And, and quite frankly, to be able to adjust because not all of your guesses are going to be, you know what I mean? Like yeah. you guys are going to be able to have this ongoing learning as you do it too. It's kind of exciting. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're all going to be learning and growing together. So that's why I'm excited about it. Education is really important in, in my family. Uh, both my parents were educators and my father getting an education is what gave us the platform to escape from polygamy. And, um, it, uh, so education has always been very valued in my home. Yeah. And, um, so it's important. It's exciting that I get to grow and continue to learn as I'm doing this. Yeah. Let, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, I know, uh, with some of your speeches, these corporations that bring you in to come talk, you, uh, you're different than their average speaker. We want to talk a little bit about your background, uh, both the family side and also uh, being deaf and a pro ball player. Yeah, it. Uh, yeah, I'm. A, I'm a little bit of a freak show as far as deaf polygamous kids making the NBA. I've kind of cornered the market, <laughs> and so it, it, it kind of makes me. Uh, yeah, just a little sideshow freak, but more than a sideshow freak. But that's what allows me to get my foot in the door. And um, it, it, it's a wacky story, no doubt. But that's what allows me when I go speak to kids not just corporations, but when I speak to kids in schools, every click identifies with me in some way. Because, you know, I played Nintendo, I played Dungeons and Dragons before I started playing sports when I turned 14, when we broke away from polygamy. I started playing basketball as a way to make friends in my new school because before then all my best friends had been my cousins and um, I had over 400 first cousins and so we were a tight-knit group and now they were all gone and so I had to learn to adapt and so... Because of that wide array of experiences, uh, I'm a jack of all trades as a speaker. And I'm someone with so much content, my own experience, that I don't plagiarize other speakers. And that's what, that was one thing that was really disenchanting for me when I started speaking when I retired last year, which is how many speakers out there just are not genuine. And not only with their own content, but just when you meet them off the stage, they're not who they portray themselves to be. Mm. And I remember when I was uh, I was asking for some advice from some people in this network speaking network. I said, "Well, what about speaking at high schools?" And they said, "Oh, there's no, there's just no money there. You just don't. We just don't speak there." And I'm like, "Well, why are we even speaking then?" And for most people, it's just a rackage. Like you know, oh, I speak, but then I have to sell my product, buy my kit for two forty nine, and you'll be a millionaire in a year, and then you'll suddenly be happy. Mike, that's not the way it works. It's just not. And that's why I get to go around talking to corporations and these kids. You know what? Saying, you know, go ahead. Well, I, I want to talk about that, about how it works. You know, uh, um, I mean, I want to talk about your show, Culture Jock, also. But mm-hmm. let, let's talk about this. Uh, you know, so many kids in this country dream about playing in the NBA. Most, you know, most of us, especially guys, have owned some Michael Jordan gear at some point in our life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, and the stats are not in in favor of uh, that nope. wish becoming a reality for most of us. Talk about, um, you know, we all know raw talent will only get people so far. Do you want right. to talk about how it really does work? How, how you really do um, <laughs> conquer the procrastination or just that extra edge that uh, um, separates you to get into that level? Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah, the extra edge came from, well, all my life I've had people putting limitations on me, telling me what I can and can't do because I was in speech therapy till I was 16. And when I finally got these digital hearing aids, and by the way, I listen to you on the phone with speakerphone right up next to my digital hearing aids, and that's how I'm able to do it if I'm in a quiet room. And uh, that's how I'm able to communicate. And uh, when I finally got digital, that's when I started to hear the diction in the front of the mouth. That's when I was able to start communicating. And, you know, most deaf people like talk like less, and that's how I talked like when I was a kid. And because we speak in the back of our necks, and you feel that reverberation in our skull. Hmm. And but then when I got digital, I finally started to see the diction in the front of the mouth. Ah, uh, that's what's happening. 
And the thing is, I didn't learn sign language because I was born and raised in this polygamous commune in rural Montana. So there were no amenities to learn sign language. I just had to learn. And um, so there's some good things about growing up in this polygamous commune. Again, you have all this family around. Everyone's united in this utopian socialist dream. But there's a, obviously, we all know there's a dark side to polygamy. There's a lot of abuse, not just sexually, but also spiritually and emotionally. And uh, at the age of five, it was impressed upon me that uh, you know God had made me deaf as a form of punishment for being unfaithful in the preexistence and the great holy war between God and Lucifer. And you know, so I basically I had to atone for some past sin that I had no recollection. And so even when we broke away from polygamy uh, at the age of 12, 13, I still had this warped perception of God and my self-worth. So I started mm. telling myself this story that I had to be the first deaf player in the NBA and then they'll finally be proud of me. I will, I will atone for this, for my shortcomings. And so that was the big chip on my shoulder. Sure, a spite's a great motivator with people always telling me what I can and can't do, and I love proving them wrong. I have a nasty habit of doing it. But um, it's empty calories. Um, but the main one was, you know, I have to earn love, and I have to always be a superhero, and that's when I'm only worthy of love. And so flash forward to 2008, I'm playing with the Cavaliers, and I'm shooting a free throw in front of 16,000 people. And I'm thinking, is this it? Hmm. Is this the best that it gets? Why don't I feel any different? And so people have these stories, like uh, these Hollywood stories have done us such a disservice of like, oh, this triumphant kiss in the, in the rain and magical music score and end roll credits and they live happily ever after. And so people are so... Uh, have been deceived about this notion of a concept of happily ever after. Uh, the movies don't show us what happens the next day or a year after that. And so uh, people then, we go through our lives thinking, oh, I have to have this constant state of euphoria to be happy. And that's not how it works. And so we, we start attaching our self-worth to event horizon to event horizon and thinking that's where our salvation is. And I learned by being on the biggest stage on the brightest lights in the world, in the NBA, that uh, it's, it's, it's all an illusion. It's just an illusion. It's, uh, it's a business at the end of the day. And so again, to your question about what people need to know, you can be the most talented person in the world. But if you're not in the right place at the right time with the right coach and the right system, you're, you're done. And so much of it, the top 30% of players in the NBA are there because they're flat out just the best athletes and in the specimens in the world. The other 70%, it comes down to luck and timing, uh, who your agent is, is your agent, former teammates with a general manager of this team or a player of a coach of that team, or does he have several clients on this team? Is everything that gets you on? Um, so people have to realize it's, it's a business. It's very political. And most fans like to think it's all pure merit, that these are truly just the best players in the world. And that's how the NBA has to package their product. That's how the coaches and the general managers have to save their jobs. The general managers saying, well, he's a bust, but there was nobody better than him that we could have drafted. And um, so it's such a crapshoot. And it really is. I mean, does the coach give you that right window of opportunity to leave your mark? And everyone's worried about losing their job. The coach's biggest fear is not concern is not winning. It's his job. And so that's, uh, that's, that's the thing it is. And when I see parents trying to push their kids into sports, I, I just sometimes tell them, you have no idea of the loneliness and isolation you're submitting your, your son to. In that, yes, you will have teammates that he will bond closely with. But the further and further he goes down this path, and I look back on my life, through my 10 years around the world, um, I, I, I never played consecutive years on the same team except for in the NBA Development League when I was called up the Cleveland Cavaliers. But even then, the teams change. And so you just kind of go through life as a vagabond, as a gladiator. And people think, oh, the NBA is all fun and glamour, but it's only the top 5% of players that have those rich, ridiculous contracts. Everyone else is really just kind of grinding and just throwaways most yeah, of the time. It makes me think about, you know, you look at like Olympic swimming, and the difference between gold and 
like not even on the podium is such Gosh. a fraction, right? That's, it's ridiculous. It's now, crazy. Now, and let, let's talk about just below that level though. You know, where, where getting to that level, where the difference between gold and last place is a fraction. Um, mm-hmm. Even getting to that level though, it does, it takes a little more than wishing in, in oh, yeah. my understanding. When you think about, um, you know, the people who have maybe inspired you um, to become the best version of yourself. What, what do you feel like is maybe some of the best advice you ever received or someone that set the example for you when it comes to like excellence, um, that you thought, I want to, I want to do it that way. I I have a few. Well, one of my parents, the educators, um, I I told you my father, when I was one, I was the youngest of five kids in, in that same year, my father broke his leg twice in the same spot. He used to build homes for this utopian uh, community, this so, this polygamous community. And he was he's like, you know what? I'm going back to school. So against the conventional wisdom of our elders, so to speak, he went on welfare for three years supporting his five kids and his wife and graduated first in his class from the University of Montana. And uh, it's a very remarkable story. And that platform gave us, again, the, the enlightenment to believe that we needed to. And then when I was a senior in high school, um, when I committed to go play at the University of Utah that same year, my mother was the graduation commencement speaker for her class at the University of Utah. She went back to school when I was in high school. And um, then also, you know, my oldest sister is a medical doctor. When she was 12 years old, she's eight years older than me. And she's 12 years old in the middle of this very chauvinistic, um, polygamist in world where, you know, she just expected to be a first or a second wife, you know, or maybe a third wife, depending on whatever, you know. And that's what women were expected to do. She says, no, I want to be a medical doctor. And so she told me uh, what she did. And so when she was 21, she was she graduated early from college. She was the youngest uh, in her class accepted to medical school. And um, what she, she told me, that was around the same time when I started playing basketball, that she started writing down her goals. And she put them above her light switch. So what I started doing is I started writing down my goals, put them above my light switch. But every time I touched them, touched the light switch, I had to read my goals three times. Hmm. And every goal I've written down has come true. Hmm. Now. Does it look like exactly what I think it's supposed to look like? No. But in some way, shape, or form, every goal I have written down for myself has come true. Now, some, my, some people might say this is obsessive-compulsive disorder. And that might be a little bit of it, and I have some of that. But it's also me embedding that imagery, that vision, that feeling of those goals that I have. I'm, I embed them into my subconscious every time I touch that light switch. And it's amazing uh, if you, if you, I'm sure you've read The Alchemist. It is true. I mean, when your subconscious understands where it's supposed to go, it's amazing the things that you attract into your life. And people mistake the law of attraction for material things. That's not what it is. Uh, the law of attraction is simply you attracting people at the same frequency into and, your life. I'm glad you brought up that book. Um, okay, I want to ask you more about that. But first, we're going to take a quick break and hear about our sponsor and then come right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Intel, and on the show we love featuring success stories, so it's easy to want Intel as a sponsor since their innovations have grown them to the point of having over 100,000 staff and brought in $55 million of revenue last year. But what we're talking about today is not their products. It's about something they want all of us to do for ourselves, and that's taking steps to make our own and our clients' information safer online. It's a continuation of something they started in 2012 when Intel created World Password Day, and they've been really successful with it. The first year, they graded over a million passwords. That means they tested them and told you how long it would take before they could be cracked and encouraged people to make better passwords. They managed to get other big organizations like Dell and Microsoft to join the movement too. What I think is hilarious is that Betty White did some public service announcements for PasswordDay.org this year that are about multi-factor authentication, which doesn't sound really funny, but the videos really are. My favorite for sure is the one where she's wearing green. It's the Fashion Maven Man Maven one. You should really check it out. Uh, You can see all the videos at PasswordDay.org, and uh, we appreciate Intel for supporting the show. Now back to the interview. I'm glad you brought up that book. Um, For everybody who doesn't know it, it's by Paulo Coelho. We'll put put a link to it on Lance's page on Ideation Collective. We'll have an Amazon link. And uh, you know what we'll put up there, too? 
I remember hearing about that book first time was Will Smith. Um, uh-huh. There's a great YouTube video we'll find and put up there where he talks about uh-huh. the value of that book um, in, you know, basically breaking into Hollywood that, that there were some, uh, you know, there's some people that maybe didn't think he was the right guy and mm-hmm. how he did it anyways kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so and that's you- a lot of it. Yeah, and then yeah, I'll give you one more. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll try not to get emotional. It's my grandmother in this polygamous commune. I remember I was in fourth grade, and I was like, I was so upset because I don't know, I was I was feeling ill, and I had all these ridiculous chores to do. Go rake pine needles in the Montana countryside. It's like who wants to rake pine needles, right? And I was so upset, and I was just angry, and I was so frustrated. My grandma came out and started working with me, and I know this sounds so simple and so trite, but. Uh, she just kind of gave me a hug and started working with me. And she said, you know, nobody likes work, but it's what we do. Hmm. And what did that mean you know, to you at that time? It just meant that's, that was our, that's our legacy. That was our family. That's who we were. And I knew she wasn't talking about everybody in general. I knew she was talking about us as a family. Hmm. And that was, that was in our blood. And she's a Ripplinger. Um, she, her parents were German of German ancestry, and I saw that's who I knew she was talking about. It's in our blood. It's what we do. And um, there were some. They were the first homesteaders in the Teton Valley in Idaho. Those are hard winters, and they're from Germany. And you know, we said, yeah, it's just what we do. And so there's been so many times through the years through my basketball career when I was so tired, we just had to one run one more sprint or the end of the fourth quarter. And the game's almost over. And I'm so exhausted. But like, you know what? is what we do. And I know it sounds so simple, but um, that uh, that little motto has carried me through a lot. Well, it's interesting too. I think about um, those, those kind of experiences we have that maybe don't come out in words as, as well as we would mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and yeah. I think from an external perspective, you know, people looking at a six foot 11 guy, 250, 260 pounds, thinking so much that that's your advantage. Yeah. When, when really at that level of athleticism, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. what I hear is it's much more the mental game. What do you, what's your thought on that? Oh yeah. No, um, if I wasn't six eleven, obviously I would not have been steered towards basketball. Um, because, you know, obviously the basketball originally, yes, basketball originally height was the deciding benefit that I had over my peers. But once you get out of high school, I mean, you're bringing everybody's in, you're tall. facing, everybody's tall. And then you have uh, three or four power forwards and centers on every team that are all around 6'9 to 6'11. So you're all the same height. And once you're talking about inches like that, it doesn't really matter anymore, right? And so um, it's all about, again, who's the most athletic, who can jump the highest. But people understand the most important thing is wingspan. She had the longest reach because you can't always just quickly jump off the ground. You have to be able to quickly grab up or deflect the ball. That's the most important thing. Um, and I don't have the longest wingspan. I have my my wingspan is proportional to my height. Six eleven wingspan, six eleven height. So I look like a normal person from a distance. People don't see how tall I am. <clears throat> they think I'm just a normal looking guy, but then they come up, wow, you're actually really tall. Um, most tall guys are really long and gangly and have long arms. And, um, I don't. And so what that really meant for me was I just played harder than anybody else. And I played smarter because of my hearing loss. I had to rely much more on visual, um, cues, reading people's body languages, quickly remembering the plays teams were running against us right away, like playing it like a game of chess. And so I would learn to always be ahead of the play defensively by saying, okay, you know, I've already seen this play. The wingman three cuts through in the baseline over to the other corner, waiting for the staggers. You just, you, just, you just learn to remember all that stuff quickly in the middle of a game, whereas a lot of players don't play like that. And especially with me being the big man, the center, I had the advantage that the hearing didn't really hurt me too much because it was my job as a center to call out the screens when I'm on defense. My guy was usually the one setting the picks on my teammates. I was rarely the one getting hit with the screen. But if I did, yeah, I would usually get hit really hard because I couldn't hear my teammates telling me, Lance, watch out, because I never played basketball with my hearing aids in. I tried to when I first started playing, but I got head-butted and my hearing aids shattered in my canal 
and I had to get stitches and I had severe concussions. So since then, I always play with my hearing aids out. Um, and so I was out there basically just playing almost deaf. And uh, with that, I just, again, I just had to learn to rely on reading so much body language. And, you know, people say, was that hard? But I'm like, oh, you know, in the fourth quarter, everyone's deaf. It's so loud in that gym. <laughs> so, and I told them, in the land of uh, temporary deafness, the permanently deaf man is king. <laughs> that I was used to it. it I wasn't rattled. It's a t-shirt right I, there. Yeah. And so... That, so, you know, instead of thinking, oh, I had all these disadvantages, like, no, you win some, you lose some. And um, with that also is, um, I can honestly say most of my teammates that know me really well, uh, they'll tell you that no one worked harder than me. Nobody did. And no one played harder. No one was more intense than I was. But again, if you remember, through it all, I was playing for my eternal soul. Because I believe really, I really felt literally, truly, just that every made or missed shot had eternal ramifications. That God would be proud of me or not. How's that? How has that belief evolved over time? Oh no! Uh, since then, and that with once I left the NBA and that huge uh, just epiphany when I'm shooting a free throw, it was a huge downward spiral of depression. Um, Almost near suicide. Yeah, near suicide. I shouldn't say almost, but it was near suicide. And um, I really had to go back and redefine my paradigm, my thought patterns uh, on just an emotional intelligence perspective. But then on a spiritual level, I really had to get to a point, you know what, all my life people have been telling me who God is. I've never taken the time to know for myself. And um, so uh, through some, a lot of, anger and loss and depression and some agnostic for a while. It's like I've come back to a place where, you know what? I was, I, the great thing about polygamy is we flatter ourselves thinking we have all the answers and absolute truth is wonderful. But those of us who have actually lived life and traveled around the world realize that there is no such thing as black and white. Uh, it's all just shades of gray. And, um, the people that live in black and white, you almost envy them that life can be that simple for them. And so for me, it's kind of like, you know, uh, I used to think I had all the answers, but I don't. The more I learn in life, the more I learn how little I know. And with that, I'm okay. It's like, you know, I'll know when I need to know. Uh, but for now, it's just like I say every morning when I get up, God, if you exist, help me to know the things about you that you would want me to know. Well, and, and I think one of the things that I'm impressed with about you is um, how unthreatened you are that people don't share the same vision as you. You know, I think um, when you had me on your show on Culture Jock, uh, I really kind of got that experience of how y your curiosity in, in other people and where they're from and what they're doing. And, um, you know, I look at your partnership there with the NPR affiliate uh, KRCL, which obviously led me to, to be able to get to uh, a, a relationship there too for them putting the podcast on and, and stuff you. like that. Yeah. Thank, thanks for that. Um, but uh, tell me about why you chose that subject for, for your show. Uh, the, the, the culture jock or yeah. just the, uh, your subject. No, the well, culture, culture jock. jock is that, again, with my background in polygamy and seeing that most of religion is mostly psychology and culture, nothing to do with spirituality and traveling around the world and dealing with everyone that thinks their culture is the right way, their religion is the right way, they're the one true church, and everyone else is like, everyone else is saying this about the other. And But then also meeting awesome people who are not in places of judgment. Um, I'm just fascinated with culture and all the ironies, the inconsistencies, and even just the double standards and hypocrisies that reside in every culture. People think their culture is an exception. They're they're deluding themselves. And when you when you scrape away the fine details, you see that most cultures have a lot of the same nuances. Uh, not all of them. Uh, not all the same nuances either. But it's just fascinating to see how culture is king for a lot of people. And they'll they'll sacrifice family before they sacrifice their culture. Um, they'll disown a child for. Uh, not believing in their religion before questioning their religion. 
And it's just fascinating how people hold on to culture over even their own blood. And so I'm fascinated with it just through all my years traveling around the world. And so I love to try to bring in people with different sources of information. Plus also, Jess, I was very savvy in realizing it's a very broad topic. I'm not pigeonholed into a certain niche and I can just go with my show wherever I want to go. Yeah. Because almost everything, almost everything plays back into culture. Yeah. Um, well, one of the things we like to ask all the different guests that come on is um, f- for our charity for child rescue, what advice you would have for us getting the word out more to try and try and get more people involved in um, stopping child trafficking and, and preventing uh, abuse of children. Any advice you have for us at our charity? Is, honestly, the, I love the one you gave to me. Well, I'll give it back to you, you, sir. One, just change the word from underage prostitution to child trafficking. Mm. That's a big one because I've been using that a lot lately. And people are asking, well, what do you mean by that? And I explained to them. And as you told me, and I, you're one of my heroes, it's just that um, when if you, if you just have five minutes with someone, you can get them to care about the issue. And I would say for you, as far as raising awareness, oh, advice I would give you Man, I'm actually excited because I think this platform that you see me creating, I've been wanting to talk to you about it. I think it's a good platform uh, for you to be able to reach millions of kids around the country and we can talk to them without their guardian or their parent at home seeing what they're doing on their remote desktop. So it's a, it's a, it's a safe platform for them to communicate with someone who's neutral, who's actually not in their community that won't betray them. Mm. And they, they can feel safe talking to us. So I'm very excited about uh, where that's going. So I'm glad you asked me. So it reminded me to mention that to you. Yeah. So. Love to hear about that. I remember growing up uh, in between Saturday morning cartoons, there was always those commercials for children's helpline. And, yeah. uh, and you know, I'm not sure everybody, not sure as many kids know that message of, Hey, what if it's the people who are supposed to be taking care of you that are the exactly. problem, then who do I yeah. reach out to? So, uh, you know, offline love to talk more about that. Um, Absolutely. Let's do it. When you think about, um, this this new vocabulary getting into the tech world i mean uh <laughs> obviously you're, you're well sought after to come talk about your basketball experience um but uh taking on a new challenge becoming proficient at something that people you know probably a bunch of people you spend time with have spent their last 20 years speaking all those acronyms any exactly. tips for the rest of us who are trying to pick up an industry or trying to dive into to learning something that may not be uh the easiest thing. What, what uh, do you do that, to, to, to get up the learning scale quick? Oh, uh, there's a lot of things I do. Um, but that's the fun thing is I intimidation and fear is all an illusion. And when people try to tell you, Oh, you have to have an MBA from Harvard to be very successful. It's like, no, do you have the social skills? That's the most important thing. Are you able to sit down and listen to people and actually genuinely connect with them, let them know that you care and network with people? That's the number one thing as far as being able to assimilate into any new profession. Mm. Can, can you figure out who are the givers? Who are the people that want to help? And that's the thing is people think, oh, I can't be a giver. People take advantage of me. No, the trick is you surround yourself with other people that want to pay it forward. That's the number one thing that I've done to insulate myself now is that you find people that believe in paying it forward. And that's, that's what I'm focused on. And so in any profession where you go to, find the people that believe in giving and they'll help you. And um, that's the number one thing. But for me, it, that's, that's, that's the excitement of life. It's just that, that's why I wanted other challenges. It's like I love playing basketball, but I hated watching basketball. I am sick of talking about basketball um, <laughs> because I like other stimulating things. And so learning new tech acronyms or how this might theoretically feasibly work in two years versus six years, six months or whatever, it's all interesting to me. Sure, it's still a lot of it is over my head. And I understand I won't be the encyclopedia on everything. Just as everyone won't be the encyclopedia on how to uh, solve a, a triangle to defense or how to write a book. I mean, it, different people have different natural inclinations to certain areas. 
but that's the fun and the challenging thing. And, and, uh, every coach I ever played for knows they'll tell you, I, I never feared anything because <laughs> the thing I feared most was God not loving. No one understood that, but I understand that's now an illusion. And the, the, the myth that we've been told that we have to earn love is the greatest con of all time. Mm. Love, love is either unconditional or it's not love at all. And, um, so that's something I love to share with people and you know what, just, just love yourself. Just we're, we're spiritual beings having a human experience and go, go out there and learn <laughs> experience setbacks, experience heartache, experience the highs and the lows. Cause as the law of nature said, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so if you're not experiencing wicked highs with wicked lows, it just means that you're not growing. You're not getting out of your comfort zone. And I can't, I can't think of any worse judgment on me than to be called mediocre. Yeah. And, and I'd rather be a failure than mediocre. <laughs> and um, that's how I live my life. Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap up here. But in, in, before we do, um, you know, a lot of people feel like they've got a book in them. A lot of people, you know, very common to, to say that people think that they plan on writing a book somewhere in the future. Um, right. Will you sum up just a bit for you of what the process of, of writing the books you've written has been like? What's your, what's your routine or what's, what's um, worked for you? I always write at night, but with my hearing loss, my parents encouraged me to read and write as a form of communication. So I was really shy about my speech as a kid. So writing has always been a way I've expressed myself. But I'll tell everyone this. My first book, Long Shot, which was published by, Har- published by HarperCollins, I started writing it my first year professionally when I was overseas in France. And I was very frustrated, very, very frustrated with how things just were not looking like I expected them to look. And um, so I started writing my life story uh, for cathartic reasons. Um, just for me, because I couldn't go see a psychologist or anybody out there in France. So I just started for my own therapy sessions, just started writing my story with enough perspective to give everyone a fair shot, as I would call the story, and that I wasn't so attached to the perspective through the lens of a child, but I was viewing it from the lens of an adult. And with that, I started developing a lot of compassion for all the people that have come through my life, good and bad, at the time, how I viewed them. But now I, you start to learn other people's motives and how most people operate in fear. Um, instead of trust or love. And so what I would tell anyone is don't write with the pressure of it being published. Hmm. Otherwise, you'll lose the fun of it. Write it for yourself. Write it for your kids or your posterity. And if it's published, great. But even then, the publishing game is such a racket. When you hear <laughs> That's a whole nother show. We said a whole nother episode on it that. But, it really is. We talked but, hours about that. And it, yeah, what does a bestseller mean? Not much because it, all it really means is Walmart pre-ordered 100,000 copies. They don't count retail sales. It's just volume pre-sales. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a whole racket. When people get caught up with judging their book having worth depending on if it's a bestseller or not, uh, they're playing a losing game because Fifty Shades of Grey not a very well-written book. It sounds like it's a 13-year-old kid who isn't able to express their feelings who's writing this book. Fifty Shades of Grey is a horrible book, literally speaking. Now, monetarily speaking, it's a huge financial success. Does that mean it's a good book? No. Mm. You, you, have to, you have to judge it both ways. Well, I, I love your thought about write it for yourself and if mm-hmm. it sells, great. Yeah. Um, I think that's I think that's great to I think that's a great. That's approach. what I tell everyone. Yeah. Just write it for yourself because if you expect it to be published, you'll put so much pressure on you and the book that you won't be able to write naturally. Well, and we're gonna we're gonna put links to both Longshot and Basketball Gods um, on your page here, as well as uh, Mainstream dot com m a n e stream dot com and uh, and some of Lance's videos on the site. Um, Lance, any parting wisdom for innovators or entrepreneurs out there? The of what you uh, what you'd tell them, uh, innovators and entrepreneurs. I will tell them. There's a lot of things I could tell you. No, get to know and learn as much as you can about 
anything in everyone's role, but be humble. Just be humble because I can walk around like I'm a big shot basketball player, but no, I just a guy that put shorts on and put a ball in a hoop. That's all I did. And find out just how to give. Because if we know, again, for every equal and opposite reaction, you know, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Why don't people give more? Because if you give, you know, in some way or another, the karma is going to come back to you. <laughs> and so it's just surprising to me that people don't find more ways to give. The fact the mainstream is doing so well already just out of the gate. If people know, wait, Lance, I'm just trying to give. I'm trying to find as much many ways as I can to give because – at the end of the day, we can only spend so much money. If I'm spending more than 50 grand a month, I am a jerk. I am. And why would I need more money than that? That's ridiculous money. So after that, it's like, you know, how do I figure out a way to help other people with that? And that was the biggest heartbreak I had when I left the NBA. So I wasn't there long enough with a platform to help kids with disabilities or setbacks uh, that I thought I had. But now I have a huge platform and it's very exciting. So just find ways to give and you'll be surprised at how much the universe will give back to you. I promise. I love it. Well, thanks for making time for us today. Thanks for having me, Jess. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Before you go, my friends know about my total obsession with Mexican food, especially a shredder beef chimichanga or seared steak nachos. But this Cinco de Mayo, when you're enjoying some amazing tacos, remember to check out the new funny videos that will be launching on passwordday.org. Also, we hope you'll take the time to learn about the aftercare orphanage Child Rescue is helping build in Cusco, Peru at iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.